Our first reading this morning is Mark chapter 5, verses 1 to 10. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of Gerasenes. And we had, and when he had stepped out of the boat, immediately a man out of the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. He lived among the tombs, and no one could restrain him any more, even with the chain. For he had often been restrained with shackles and chains, but the chain he wrenched apart, and the shackles he broke into pieces, and no one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always howling and bruising himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and bowed down before him, and he shouted at the top of his voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he had said to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. He begged him earnestly not to send him out of the country. Our second reading today is a continuation of Mark, verses 11 to 20. Now there on the hillside, a great herd of swine was feeding, and the unclean spirits begged him, send us into the swine, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the swine, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and were drowned in the sea. The swine herds ran off and told the city and the country. Then people came to see what it was that happened. They came to Jesus and saw the demonic sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, the very man who had the legion, and they were afraid. Those who had seen what had happened to the demonic and to the swine reported it, and they began to beg Jesus to leave their neighborhood. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed by demons begged him that he might be with him. But Jesus refused and said, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and what mercy he has shown you. And when he went away and began to proclaim to the, Deca to the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone was amazed. Amen. Our journey through Mark's Gospel brings us this week to the famous story of the Gadarene or Gerizene demoniac. We'll come to this man and his demons shortly, but it's worth spending a bit of time first with the geography, not least because some of us here will be visiting this area later this year on our next Bloomsbury trip to Palestine and Israel. The reading began with Jesus and his disciples crossing the Sea of Galilee. Uh, this is uh, on this map, sort of towards the top. So the big, the big bit of water down the bottom is the Dead Sea, and the smaller but still quite substantial bit of water, sort of two-thirds of the way up, is the Sea of Galilee. 
And Jesus crossed the Sea of Galilee and went into an area known as the Decapolis, which got its name from two Greek words, deca meaning ten and polis meaning cities. It was this area of the ten cities, uh, which in the first century was on the eastern frontier of the Roman Empire. Uh, These cities formed a group because of their common language, their shared culture, their geographical location, and a, a slightly uncertain political status, each city functioning as a kind of autonomous city-state dependent on Rome. Uh, they're sometimes described in the commentaries as being a kind of a league of independent cities. It's unclear whether they were ever formally organised as a political unit or not. Well, in terms of contemporary geography, most of the Decapolis region is now located in Jordan, uh, but Damascus is in Syria. And the two sisters who arrived uh, and are now in their flat just up the road from here are originally from Damascus and have come to us via a refugee camp in Iraq. Uh, Similarly, the towns of uh, Hippos and, how do I say this, Scythopolis, are in Israel. So at the time of Jesus, this area of the ten cities, the Decapolis, was a centre of Greek and Roman culture in a region that was otherwise generally more culturally populated by Jewish people. In other words, the Decapolis was Gentile territory that Jesus led his followers into, albeit Gentile territory with strongly Jewish links. It was the land beyond the Jordan. If you are to the west of the Jordan, you're in firmly Jewish territory. You cross over the Jordan, it's Gentile territory, but still quite a lot of Jews live there. Uh, It was a place where the less religiously observant Jews and God-fearing Gentiles could live and trade alongside each other. People with very different cultural and religious convictions to their own, finding a place where they could coexist. Forgive the pun, but if Israel was the promised land, the Decapolis was the compromised land. You have no idea how pleased I was when I thought that up this week. (laughs) And Jesus taking his disciples across the sea to visit it was a symbolic reversal of the journey taken by the children of Israel at the end of the Exodus. You remember the story. They crossed the waters of the Jordan to take possession of the promised land. And here I want to pause for a moment and think about that word I just used. Did you spot it? I said, at the end of the Exodus, they crossed the waters of the Jordan to take possession of the promised land. This word possession, I want to think about that and it's used to indicate ownership of land because this is going to be crucial for us in our engagement with the story of the demon-possessed man from this region. Let me read you from the book of Exodus which spells out some of the purity legislation that the books of the law recorded as having been given by God to the Jews as they took possession of the promised land. 
You shall keep all my statutes and all my ordinances and observe them, so that the land which I bring you to settle in may not vomit you out. You shall not follow the practices of the nation that I am driving out before you, because they did all these things, I abhorred them. But I have said to you, you shall inherit their land, and I will give it to you to possess. A land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God. I have separated you from the peoples. You shall therefore make a distinction between the clean animal and the unclean, and between the unclean bird and the clean. You shall not bring abomination on yourselves by animal or bird or by anything with which the ground teems which I have set apart for you to hold unclean. You shall be holy to me, for I the Lord am holy, and I have separated you from the other peoples to be mine. There it is again. That slippery word, possession. According to Leviticus, God gave the children of Abraham the promised land, for them to possess, for them to inhabit, for them to take from those who were already living there. It's uncomfortable at a number of levels, isn't it? I mean, do we really believe God works like this? Does God command people to displace other people and take possession of their land? Some people believe this very strongly. It's the idea behind notions such as the Christian nation. But it also has a very contemporary resonance for those today who find themselves living in places that other people lay claim to. Whether or not you agree that Israel as a nation in our time has the right to possess the land of Palestine... There is no denying the strong biblical precedent that passages such as this offer to the possessing forces. One potentially helpful perspective might be that this passage from Leviticus and others like it, rather than being a direct record of what God said to the Jews as they stood on the east bank of the Jordan looking across at the land flowing with milk and honey, is actually instead a much later text, attempting to theologically justify a historic act of violent oppression by claiming post hoc after the event that God told them to do it. Another equally uncomfortable aspect of this is the division we find here between holy and unholy, between clean and unclean. Do we believe that God was at some point in history only really interested in one group of people who were holy and pure and clean while everyone else was unacceptable. Certainly the author of this part of Leviticus believed that to be the case. We might, of course, conclude that such an isolationist perspective was a betrayal rather than a fulfilment of God's covenant with Abraham, that God would be Abraham's God and that Abraham's children would be God's people. We don't have to agree with everything that we read in the Bible. I've got the line from Porgy and Bess running through my head now. The things that you're liable to read in the Bible, it ain't necessarily so. You see, there is a strand of theology, a counter-testimony, if you like, within the Hebrew Bible, 
which makes it very clear that the purpose of God calling one nation, leading them into a deeper discovery of God's nature and purposes, was so that those people, the chosen people, could then bring that blessing to others, shining as a light to all the nations. We might conclude that within the Hebrew Bible, there are divergent voices arguing out what it means to be the people of God, and that you've got your right-wing exclusionist views there, and that they're set alongside other more hopeful and inclusive views, and the invitation is to work out where God sits in the middle of these experiments of trying to work out what God might be like. Well, we might, on the basis of this, conclude, therefore, that when Jesus, early in his ministry, deliberately crossed the boundary into the Gentile territory of the Decapolis to bring healing and restoration to those who lived there, he was symbolically setting his ministry in direct opposition to those forces of religion in his time which were focused around a nationalistic possession of the land and on the maintenance of holiness and purity codes at all costs. Maybe Jesus sits more on the side of the inclusive theology strand in the Hebrew Bible than he does on the nationalistic strand. And so Jesus goes over the sea. And here we have a slight confusion in the textual tradition because it's not quite clear which town is being talked about here. You see, there are two towns near each other with similar sounding names. One of them is Gerasa, and the other is Gadara, and they're both cities of the Decapolis. And depending on which ancient manuscript you're reading, the exorcism either takes place in the region of the Gerasenes or in the region of the Gadarenes. Why does this matter, you might well ask. Well, the problem is that the better textual tradition is for Gerasa, which is what our Pew Bibles go with. But Gerasa, as you can see from the map, is quite some way from the Sea of Galilee, which means that 2,000 demon-possessed pigs running all that way, and that is quite a long way, to go to the sea to drown themselves is rather hard to visualize. That part of the story would make a lot more sense at Gadara. However, Gerasa may be the location of a notorious Jewish revolt against the Romans, referred to by the Jewish historian Josephus, in which a thousand rebels were slaughtered by the legionaries of Rome. Possibly what's happened here is that Mark has run a couple of different stories and a couple of different locations together, giving us the confusion that we've inherited from maps and the manuscripts. It doesn't really matter, of course, because Mark isn't writing history. He's writing theology. And the theology is clear enough wherever the story is set. Jesus and his disciples cross the sea to the region of the Gentiles, making the journey from promised land to compromised land, from purity to uncleanness, from in to out. And what they find there is the demon-possessed man living among the tombs unable to be bound, and self-harming in torment. Today's sermon isn't a sermon about poor mental health. But I do just want to say at this point that there will be those of us here this morning, myself included, 
who find this story distressing because it records a level of self-hatred and self-harm that will resonate with our own experiences. Wherever people are victimized, there is a capacity for us to internalize and enact the rejection we experience, finding ourselves compelled by forces we cannot control into actions that harm us, either individually or collectively. And whilst I do not doubt that an encounter with Jesus can open a path to healing and wholeness for those whose souls and minds are in torment, I firmly believe that path includes appropriate medication and talking therapy, supported by the prayerful love of the Christian community. The key to understanding how Mark uses this story to reveal more of the person and ministry of Jesus lies in the geography that we've already been paying attention to. The man is possessed by a demonic legion, which is the word for a large military unit of the Roman army, sometimes as many as five or 6,000 men, but always over 1,000. And clearly for Mark, the story of this man is a metaphor for the Roman military possession of the land. That's not to say he wasn't real and that this didn't happen, but it is to say that the way Mark tells the story, there is another layer of meaning that he's inviting his readers to consider. The land given by God to the Jews to possess had been in turn, over the years, possessed by the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, and the Romans. And this is a story of possession going back centuries. And the demonic legions currently occupying the land at the time of Jesus are just the latest manifestation of a much greater and more enduring evil, which is the cycle of oppression and domination where one group of humans possesses another. We might dress it up as being about land, inheritance, glory, or the divine right of kings, but ultimately this is a story about power. Who has the power to possess another? Whether the other is a man living amongst the tombs, or the region of the Decapolis, or the nation of Israel, or any other people, tribe, or demographic which finds itself dominated and oppressed. You see, this man isn't just a metaphor for the land of Israel. He's a metaphor for all possessed peoples everywhere. This story unmasks all such dominating powers as legion as satanic in origin. And this is true whether we're talking about one nation oppressing another or an ideology possessing an individual or a group of people. From the lone suicide bomber to the so-called just war, acts of violence find their ultimate origin in evil as people idolize dogma and legions march once again. So Jesus meets the man with the legion of demons, and the man starts shouting at Jesus. What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. In an earlier sermon from our series on Mark, I have suggested that the reason Jesus kept silencing demons who keep trying to name him was because he didn't want to end up accepting titles that would align him with the Jewish 
system of purity legislation. And if part of Jesus' strategy for bringing healing and wholeness to the land and the people was the casting out of the evils of exclusion, and by declaring to be clean that which was previously considered unclean, the demonic attempt to name Jesus as just another preacher of righteousness was always an attempt to rob him of his power because it, it sought to align him with a religious system that had already demonstrated its failure to bring good news to those excluded, suffering, and marginalized. So Jesus commands the demons to leave the man, asking the demon to give its name. And the demon replies using military and geographical language. He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And the demon begged Jesus earnestly not to send them out of the country. At which point, Jesus cast the legion of demons into a conveniently legion-sized herd of pigs, which promptly rushes down into the sea and drowns, returning the demonic legion to the waters of chaos. And those of us who have a concern for animal welfare might well at this point be somewhat miffed with Jesus for solving the problem by killing 2,000 pigs. It's not easy to explain, and I don't really think, from a contemporary point of view, it can be justified. But there is a possibility that it may be understood. From a Jewish purity law perspective, pigs were unclean animals. They were not to be touched or eaten. But of course, we're not in a Jewish area here, in the Decapolis, or at least not entirely. We're in compromised land, remember, not promised land. Here, people keep pigs in quite large numbers, so it would seem. And the Jewish and Gentile populations of the Decapolis were a multicultural as well as multi-ethnic group. They were people who lived in the grey area of compromise. You like bacon? You have bacon. You don't want bacon? You don't have bacon. That would be the mantra of the Decapolis. You get the idea. It's not exactly the modern metropolitan liberalism of London, but it's certainly a step in our direction. But from a Jewish perspective, and of course, Mark's readership would have been predominantly Jewish. This is the perfect end to the story. The unclean pigs get their comeuppance, and there's a not-so-subtle joke here about legionaries being pigs. We may think that insulting the police in this way is relatively modern, but people have been making pig jokes about the police for millennia. Anyway, the man is now in his right mind. The possession is ended, but the locals don't seem very happy. The local population now beg Jesus to leave. Primarily, presumably, because he's just killed all their pigs. And you can see their point. From their perspective, the compromised land was just fine. The last thing they needed was some new Jewish purity prophet coming along with miraculous powers killing their unclean herds and challenging who knows what else lucrative practices they've been quietly and happily developing. They don't want a radical reformation. They don't want some religio-political revolution. They just want to be left alone. And so they plead with Jesus, begging him to leave their neighborhood. They don't really want the legions gone. They want Jesus gone. They're comfortable with their compromises, and they have learned to survive under oppression, and some of them are even doing very well from the resident legions. Thank you very much. The reason the man had not been healed before was because of the dysfunctional codependency that had been reached between his suffering 
and the local economy. He had become their convenient scapegoat, the weird man in the tombs who was both scary and useful, the bogeyman you could use to keep the kids in check and the person you could blame when things went wrong. But they didn't want him gone any more than they wanted the legions out of their land. Because just as they could scapegoat the man amongst the tombs, so they could blame the occupying forces for things that they felt were beyond their control. There is a strange resistance to freedom, where those who have been oppressed for so long are scared when the opportunity to be and live differently presents itself. And the locals here haven't grasped that the casting out of legion is not is good news not just for the man, but for everyone, Jew and Gentile alike. This is at the heart of what Mark is trying to tell us about the nature and ministry of Jesus. Jesus, we are discovering, isn't just another first century Jewish purity prophet. He hasn't embarked on a mission to reinforce the boundary between in and out, or to declare people unclean and worthy of punishment. He hasn't gone to the Decapolis to get rid of the unclean herds and restore Jewish law to a contested area. Rather, he is playing a much deeper and, it turns out, more dangerous game by challenging the very ideologies of exclusion that have created the context for people being possessed and declared unclean in the first place. So at the end of the story, Jesus doesn't silence the man. Rather, he sends him to tell everyone about the mercy God has shown him. This man doesn't need to be kept quiet because his testimony to the way Jesus has healed him by going beyond the boundaries of national identity and religious purity and by challenging the demonic powers that dominate and possess the land is not putting onto something, onto Jesus, something he does not want to own. Rather, it is authentic testimony to what Jesus does when he encounters oppression. This is a revelation of God in Jesus, who goes where he is not even sought to bring peace to those who don't recognize it even as a desirable objective. And so how do we hear this story in our world? Where are the powers of enshrined violence to be found? Where are the demons that Jesus would cast out? Well, let's name a few. But there are many more because their names are legion. Racism is a demon. Poverty is a demon. Powerlessness is a demon. Homophobia and transphobia are demons. Oppression is a demon. Disempowerment is a demon. Hatred is a demon. Self-righteousness is a demon, and so is self-harm. War is always a demon. I'm going to suggest that any ideology that ends with ism can become a demon. Lack of hospitality is a demon. Denying the image of God in another is a demon. And I could go on and on and on. But I'll leave each of us to write our own lists of the demons that we are aware of in our lives and our world. And as you ponder this this week, 
as each of us looks deep in our hearts at the darkness that lies within, sometimes we may discover that we have something in common with the people of the Decapolis, which is that we don't really want our demons gone because we've got used to them or because we have developed dysfunctional codependencies with them. And I think the good news here is that the casting out of evil is always, in the end, good news for everyone. How else, how else are we to be fully human before God? So let's bring our prayers to God for the world. Great God of the whole earth, you call us to be your body. And so today, as your body gathered in this place, we offer our whole selves to your service. May we be knit together by your spirit so that our common life reflects your calling and your will. Direct our thoughts, words and deeds in ways that make real in this world the eternal truth of your coming kingdom. Teach our eyes to see the world as you see it, rather than as the world wants to be seen. May we learn to see through the insidious propaganda that so readily dominates human relationships, from the interpersonal to the international. May we learn that the other is also a child of God, as deeply loved and valued as we are ourselves. From the abstract refugee, migrant and asylum seeker to the person we find most difficult in our day-to-day -day lives. May we discover you in those we fear. And so we pray for those who help us to see. We pray for journalists, for the opinion formers, for politicians and for bloggers. We thank you for fearless truth-telling and we pray for integrity for all those who show others what to believe. We thank you for the freedom of speech that we enjoy in this country, and we ask your wisdom as we discern where we should direct our own eyes. May we look not only to our own interests, but also to the interests of others. And as we have seen, so we must do. Teach us, living Lord, where we should take our stand. May we be released from the compulsion to aggressively defend our own territory. And instead, may we learn what it means to stand on justice and righteousness and truth. As the firm ground of our certainties shifts beneath us, may we learn how to walk new paths of collaboration and cooperation. So we pray for our traditional enemies, for those whom we instinctively stand against. And we ask that in the new world of your spirit, enemies may become friends, reaching out across borders previously uncrossed. And so we pray for Israel and Palestine, and for Syria and Iraq, 
for South Sudan and for the countries of Europe. May peace and justice prevail. In the week where we leave the European Union, we pray for all those who are our neighbours in the continent of Europe. We pray also for those who take their stand on issues of moral or theological certainty, but in so doing exclude others from your love. Grant us again a vision of your universal kingdom, which recognises no divisions and transcends all borders. May we have the courage to follow where you lead, from promised land to compromised land. And as we negotiate the changing territory of the world, we pray that you will direct our actions. May the works of our hands be acceptable in your sight. May we build friendships and not enmities. May we reach out in love and acceptance to those whom others would push away. May we be willing to set aside our own preferences and prejudices as we seek to include those who have nowhere to belong. May we together become your body, extending a welcome to all in your name, bringing food to the hungry, clothing to the naked, and healing to the sick. May our hands be generous in your service, releasing our time, talents, and money to the service of your kingdom. So we pray for all those with whom we partner as we reach out to the vulnerable and hurting of this world. We commit to your care and guidance our relationship with BMS World Mission, Christian Aid and the Amos Trust. And we pray more locally for the work of London citizens, the Simon community, the C4WS Night Shelter. Great God of us all, teach us to live in love, to stand in hope, and to act with justice for the sake of your kingdom. Amen.